Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning comes from Proverbs 22, verse 5. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards his soul will be far from them. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards his soul will be far from them. In this proverb, we have the contrast between the perverse and the righteous, or he who guards his soul. The twisted soul has thorns and snares in two ways. First, in his way, he lays traps and hurts those around him. Instead of loving his neighbor, he seeks to exploit his neighbor. He's, he's all about himself. He wants to gain for himself, so he doesn't care about his neighbor. Second, God created the world in such a way that what goes around comes around. So, um, because he treats other people badly, he will be treated badly. Violent men suffer violence. Liars get trapped by their lies. Those who don't honor their word earn a reputation, and eventually their course of action catches up with them. To put it another way, um, perverse men burn bridges, and in the end they find themselves hurt by thorns and entrapped by snares, and moreover, they have no one to blame but themselves. In contrast to this, we see the righteous, or specifically, he who guards his soul. He is protected from thorns and snares. His foresight and diligence pay off in the end. Notice that this sort of thing doesn't just happen. He plays an active role in this. He must guard his soul. And this is because the difference between the perverse and the upright is not elemental. The righteous is not automatically righteous, and the perverse is not automatically perverse. In a fallen world, good men must labor. They must work hard to be obedient and faithful. We're called to never-ending diligence in life. We must stand guard because the truth is that we are all prone to falling into the way of the perverse. And that's because Adam sinned. It's only by the fear of the Lord and the grace of God that any man has the ability to first see and then to live rightly. However, our God is gracious, and he has ordained the means of confession and repentance so that we may be faithful, and he may preserve our souls far from the thorns and snares of life. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so if you're willing and able, please kneel as we confess our sins. And it's, a, it's another installment in the saga of Paul's arrest in Jerusalem. I think we can go by way of quick review here. In chapter 21, Paul traveled to Jerusalem. He went to the temple, and he was arrested, and he interacted with the Roman commander. In chapter 22, he addressed the mob. From the steps, remember, from the steps of the fortress, right, right outside the temple. And, uh, and yet the mob tried to kill him, and uh, so the commander Lysias was going to, to scourge him, and he claimed his, his Roman citizenship in order to prevent the scourging. In chapter 23, Luke tells us of how the Sanhedrin was divided, and they, uh, because Paul said, I'm a Pharisee, and he, he split the Sanhedrin by the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees. And then at the end of chapter 23, um, we see the plot that the Jews 
brought in order they were going to kill Paul. They, 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 they told the chief priests to get Paul to be brought out to the temple to be uh, tried before the Sanhedrin. But Paul's nephew heard about it, and he, he told Lysias and Paul. And so Paul is sent to Felix in Caesarea. And that's, where we, that's what we studied last week, is Paul's in Caesarea with Felix in chapter 24. And Felix hears the charges against Paul, but Paul defends himself. But Felix procrastinates. So Paul's left in jail for two years. Uh, and so this, it's a saga, it's a long story here of what's happened to Paul since he got to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. Uh, ever since chapter 21 of, of Acts, so you realize this is a big chunk of scripture, and I, you may have been picking up that I've been preaching on big chunks of scripture as we've been going through this, because it's a story, and Luke is setting the stage. He, ever since chapter 20, Luke, 21, Luke has been setting the stage for Paul's final presentation of the gospel to Israel, to both Roman and Jewish authorities, and not just any Roman and Jewish authorities, but the highest authorities in the entire region of Israel. And in our text today, Luke uh, brings together the final pieces. He sets in order the final pieces of this story um, he, to, uh, for, for Paul to give his testimony in chapter 26. And that's what we're going to get into next week. We have a whole chapter where he's still setting the table for this, this message of, of what, he's, what he's going to be telling us. And though we're still setting the stage, if you will, we still learn some valuable and lasting truths from our text. Uh, and so, uh, and you'll look if you look down in your outlines that in the uh, conclusion or the application, the first thing we're going to see is that that sin is stupid. Sin, sin is stupid. It's not smart. It's irrational, and it makes a mess of things. We're going we're to glean that out of our text this morning. Uh, the second thing we're going to see is that dis despite the fact that sin is stupid and the fact that sin is everywhere. The remarkable providence of God has been manifested. God isn't frustrated by our sin. We can't get in God's way. God still carries on his story in his way and tells his message the way he wants us to see it and hear it. The, the story of history. As time passes, as things come to pass, all these things are ordained by our sovereign and eternal God. So though sin is stupid and irrational and it makes a mess of things, God is writing a story that's glorious in the middle of that. Uh, as his disciples, we can trust him to do his, his pleasure in our lives. And it's, we've already seen this multiple times as we've gone through this saga. God protected Paul four separate times from the Jews who were trying to kill him. They, they wanted to kill him. They were, they, were, they were unified purpose. We need to kill Paul. Four separate times, God just plucks him out of their hands. Not to speak of the countless times before this trip to Jerusalem. I mean, all the, the, as we've been studying about Paul, ever since um, we got it been in Acts, we've seen the disciples, not just Paul, but Peter and John, all the disciples have been delivered by God time and again. And Paul's been, he's been saved from, from the Jews, he's been saved from Claudius Lysias by his Roman citizenship. Uh, and, then, and then God sustained, sustained Paul in a two-year prison sentence under Felix. And today he further protects Paul from Jewish plotting and wicked politics. And that's, we're going to get into that in the story of our text. And the third thing, and the final thing, is that all the while that Paul has been under these attacks, and, and, the, and he's, been, he's been suffering, Paul's been faithful and patient, and he gets rewarded for this. He gets to participate in God's glory. Because he rests in God, because he trusts God, he, and he submits to God's plan for his life, he receives glory. And, and the primary example of this is just the fact that we're talking about Paul today, 2,000 years later. Paul's received glory. 
I mean, we're going to be talking about uh, Festus, Porcius Festus. We're going to be, he's, he's the, the ruler that replaced Felix. We're going to be talking about uh, Agrippa and Bernice. They were the king and queen of Israel. Um, and I'm going to be giving you all kinds of information about them because that's part of the story, and that's part of Luke laying out. The, you know, this is this is this is the stage. This is what's happening here. But but those were the big names. I mean, those were the. I mean, in that world, nobody could fathom. You know, not Rome or not the temple, or not Israel. And yet, Paul is the one that everybody knows. You go on the street, and people know who Paul. Paul the apostle is. If you ask somebody on the street who Porcius Festus is, I'd be surprised if they knew. And most of us still need to learn who this guy is, or, or who Agrippa and Bernice were. And yet it's important for us to learn this as we go through this, because, and that's why, Luke tells, that's why Luke sets the stage. It's important for us to know these people because it really brings home what Paul was actually doing in the text as he's giving his testimony. So, we start with the text. Our text today, chapter 25, and we're going to divide it into three broad sections. And the first section, we're going to divide it again into two, two smaller sections. Uh, the first section of our text is uh, Luke's version of the events between Festus and Paul when Festus uh, arrives in Israel. It's, it's verses 1 through 12. We're going to start... Um, with verses 1 to 5, and, and this is a request denied. Festus comes to Israel to replace Felix as governor of the territory, and uh, he goes to Jerusalem on a political trip. He's, 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 it's a business trip. And, he, and when, while he's there, he hears complaints against Paul, but he denies a request by the Jews to move Paul to Jerusalem. Verses 1 through 5. Now when Festus had come to the province... After three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem, while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore he said, Let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man, to see if there is any fault in him. Now it's almost certain that Festus was unaware of the plot to kill Paul. They, they didn't say, well, you bring him down and we'll kill him on the way. That, that, that's not, that's not the, the Jews didn't tell him that up front. But um, most likely his denial is a result of him wanting to go back to Caesarea. Caesarea was uh, right on the coast of Israel. It was a very Roman city. It was the capital of the region from the Roman, uh, from the Roman perspective. And so Jerusalem was ruled from Caesarea. Uh, Festus was the procurator of Judea, and Jerusalem was within his territory, but the palace of Festus was in Caesarea. And, and so that was what the Roman rulers would have called home. It would have, it would have had their, their uh, creature comforts, you know, their, their, their baths and their, 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 their fancy, uh, that's, it was a port city, they would have had all the, the, the trade coming in there. So he, he, he most likely wanted to get done with this business trip and be home. That's probably a big part of why he wants to, to, to move this there. And, and this trip to Jerusalem was more like, uh, it was a business trip, political housekeeping. He's starting a new charge. He's, he's now in control of this region. He's, he answers for what goes on here. And so he's going to Jerusalem because it's the capital of the Jewish nation. And, and that's where the, the, the leaders of the Jews reside. And so he needs, to, he needs to interact there and work with them closely because they're the people that he's ruling. So Luke goes on to tell us of the circumstances that lead to Paul's appeal to Caesar, verses 6 through 12. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, this is Festus among the Jews in Jerusalem, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. 
while he answered for himself. And this is what Paul says. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. So Paul yet again uses ordinary means. He uses the right of a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar to escape another grave risk. Unlike Festus, Paul was suspicious of a Jewish plot to kill him. He knew their plans from before, from two years before, and he had no reason to think that their plans might have changed. Moreover, in Jerusalem, the Jews, in Jerusalem, the Jews had authority to mete out capital punishment for certain infractions of their law. And I've mentioned this before. Um, the, here's the issue, is that if Paul accepts what Festus is offering, going to Jerusalem to be tried, he knows that it's going to be a monkey court. He knows that it's, it's going to be a rigged, it's a rigged trial. And he's going to stand before the Sanhedrin, and they're going to accuse him of a bunch of things that he knows that Festus doesn't understand. Festus is not a Jew. He doesn't, he's said to rule the Jews, but he's new to the Jewish territory. He doesn't understand the intricacies of the Jewish law. And so he knows that Festus is not equipped to follow the arguments, and he knows that he's going to be outnumbered there. And so, um, and he knows that he's not going to get a fair trial, and so, and, and he knows that Festus is even going to testify that he doesn't understand this in, in a little bit in the text. So Paul's, Paul knows he's innocent, the charges are unjust, and he knows that Festus uh, is not leaning in his favor. And, and you can understand Festus's predicament. I mean, here he's given a new charge with a really complicated area to rule. The Jews are notorious for being hard to rule. They were, they, they were rebellious. They, they had all these factions. They had the Sadducees and the Pharisees in, within their, their council, and they'd fight against each other. I mean, to the point where they're pulling people apart, like they were trying to do to Paul. Um, Festus... Um, is, is he's, he's left in charge of ruling these people, and, and the people that are accusing Paul, are the, they are the ones in the seat of power in Jerusalem. So you can understand his desire to give them a favor. But uh, Paul, uh, Paul locks his, his, his options. Paul, Paul stops this, this possibility from happening. Since, since to Paul, Festus doesn't appear to be likely to set him free on the merits of the case... Um, Paul appeals to Caesar, and but that puts Festus in a, in a bit of a bind. And, and he's going to actually tell us exactly what his bind is at the end of the chapter. So that, that's the first section. Is Now Paul, Paul has appealed to Caesar, and this is Luke's perspective. The second section of our text, in that Luke gives us Festus's perspective of the same events. And Festus is going to tell his own perspective of these events in verses 13 through 22. And this is Festus telling them as he reports them to Agrippa. So verses 13 to 22. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying... There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. 
To them, I answered, it is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain man, Jesus, who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So notice that he doesn't mention the plot to kill Paul. He wasn't aware of it. Um, There's a little bit of an altruistic spin regarding Roman customs. Um, You know, he says that it it was, but it's true. Uh, Festus is, he's a a good guy in a pagan sense. He's trying to do the right thing. Uh, He doesn't understand what's going on here. He's kind of, he's between a rock and a hard place. Notice, Notice the mention of Jesus Christ, though. He, Festus minimizes Jesus. He's, he says, you know, um, because I was uncertain of such questions, I, um, uh, he's, no, he says, um, he, they, had, they had some questions against him about their own religion, about a certain Jesus, who had died when Paul, Paul affirmed to be alive. And he says, I, I, don't, I don't understand that stuff. He's like, that's not my, that's not my area. Um, but notice that even even though he doesn't get it, and this is all you know. It's Greek to him. <laughs> he probably spoke Greek, but you know, it, it was Greek to him. He didn't he didn't understand uh, what 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 this is all about. He can't leave Jesus out of out of it. He can minimize Jesus. He can say a certain Jesus, but he can't do away with Jesus when it comes to relating Paul's testimony. That's huge. And that, you know, taking Jesus out of Paul's testimony is impossible. It's impossible. Jesus, Paul is, he's a, he's a, he's a one-note machine. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus dead, died and crucified and raised from the dead. And so, Paul, he, you know, Festus doesn't understand these things, but he does understand that Paul thinks Jesus is alive. He understands that. But this is where Festus dropped the wall, dropped the ball. This is where Festus failed. This is where we find faults with Festus. In verse 20, it says, And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. That's verse 20. That's where Festus dropped the ball. Festus was a judge. He was a king, and a wise ruler discerns truth. Instead of passing the buck, instead of standing up and saying, Whoa! Whoa! What are you saying, Paul? Do you have any witnesses? Can you explain this? Instead of figuring it out, instead of remaining uncertain, Festus should have figured it out. That's what he didn't do. And that's where he dropped the ball. He he, he should have become certain of such matters. There were witnesses. There were many witnesses. And Paul would have been happy to elaborate. He would have been delighted to have the opportunity to explain in crystal clear detail what he's talking about. But, since he did drop the ball, since he did pass the buck, since he says, well, I tried to get him to go to Jerusalem, and Paul refused to do that, this is what, this, he has a problem. Festus is left with a problem, and he tells us exactly what his problem is. Verses 23 to 27. Um, So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, now this is where Festus says, he's going to lay out the issue. Festus said, 
King Agrippa, and all the men who are here present with us, the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify charges against him. That's a problem. That's Festus's problem. It doesn't make any sense. You send a prisoner on appeal to Caesar, the ruler of the known world, a god alive, without charges? I mean, why don't you just let him go? Why, why don't you just let him go? Festus is stuck. Because he's refused to figure it out and declare, vindicate, declare Paul righteous and set him free, he's stuck with having to look kind of messed up before Caesar. So that's, that's the text. And now we have some context. Who is Porcius Festus? Um, Porcius Festus was a, uh, the Roman procurator of the province of Judea. He was the man sent to replace Felix as governor of the region. And he is the one with the real power in this story. Well, the real political power in this story. God is the one. Luke's telling the story. And he's pointing to God and Jesus Christ. But, but in, in, the, in the context of this story, the context of Paul's trial, Porcius Festus is the one with the right and the authority and the power to set him free, to command him to go to death. He's the one who has to decide what to do with Paul. He was appointed by Caesar. Now, there were many Caesars. Which Caesar was this? This Caesar was Nero. Nero. The now infamous Nero, who was the Caesar who fiddled while Rome burned. He was a wicked and evil man. He was vile. He was a murderer. He, he, he murdered his own mother. He murdered his brother. He was a megalomaniac. He was a persecutor of Christians. An evil man. That's the Nero. That's the Caesar. And they call him Augustus, and it's because when he became Caesar, he took on the, the, the family name of Augustus. But it's Nero. The year is 59 AD, and Nero appoints Festus to be the procurator of Judea. Now this might make you think that Paul was crazy to appeal to this guy. What is he thinking? But it, <laughs> you have to understand context. Nero, he was a bad guy, but it hadn't come out yet. He'd only been ruling for four or five years. This was early in his rule, and the early years of Nero's rule were a little bit of a golden era in, in, in Rome. He was still taking advice from his mother and his, his tutor, Seneca. And until he finally rejected all of the counselors that he had and uh, his life was messed up. He was, he was on the path to where he was going and his, his infamous reputation is well deserved. But until he got there God preserved his reputation and he was highly thought of throughout the realm especially in the east in, in, in Israel as a fairly judicious person because he was still following some of the, the counsel that he was being given. His, his wickednesses had not been manifested yet, or at least not publicly so. So then, Festus was the true authority in Judea. But he did have real problems. 
Uh, he, and we've already talked about some of them. He, he inherited problems from Felix. Felix was a, a horrible ruler. He mismanaged the whole realm. The Jews were unhappy. And because the Jews were unhappy, uh, it was a mess. So, so he, he had real problems because, because Felix had ruled poorly. Um, the Jews themselves, they just were hard to rule anyways. They didn't assimilate well into Roman culture, and they refused the, the cultic worship of the emperors. They were always seeking opportunities to regain their independence. They, they resented Roman procurators. They resented him just by, for who he was. But, all that being the case, the, the, the Festus's story, he had a fairly good rule. While he was the ruler of, of, uh, of Judea, he succeeded in getting rid of, of, of a notorious assassins group called the Sicarii. Um, they, they, they were a group of assassins that used short knives called Sicarii. And, and the, the, the word Sicarii, that's with an extra I on the end, that means that it's, it's multiple short knives. And so that, that's, that's how they were known, is the Sicarii. And, and, he, and he crushed that, that, uh, the, that group. Um, on top of that, as we see in our text, he was very concerned with being a good Roman. He, he, he wanted to maintain his, his reputation. Uh, he was insistent on Roman custom. He's prompt in carrying out the trial. Um, and he, he, had a, he wanted to have a, a good reason to send Paul to Caesar. So that's why he's bringing all this to Agrippa. Then we have the next set, part of the context, and that's Agrippa and Bernice, the Jewish king and his sister. This was Herod Agrippa II, and their family was a mess. This was the, the, the line of the Herods. started with Herod the Great, who was a, uh, another megalomaniac. He, he, he just was full of himself. And he was the one who tried to kill, all the, the, kill Jesus by killing all the boys in, in Bethlehem. That's, that's Agrippa II's great-grandfather. And then his, his father was Herod Agrippa I, and that's the guy who tried to kill Peter. And uh, God judged him, and he's, you know, he came out at the games, and he says, The voice of a god and not of a man! That's, that's what the people were shouting at him. And God struck him, and worms came out of his bowels, and he died. So, uh, you know, not a great family. And... Agrippa and Bernice follow in suit. They were they were siblings, um, and they were living as husband and wife. They were sisters to the wife of of, uh, of Felix, Drusilla. Remember, Drusilla was a Jewess. Well, that was their sister. Um, they these this is just a messed up family. Agrippa himself had been raised in Rome. Um, he'd been given a small jurisdiction in northern Israel. It was a kind of a rural district, you know, a little bit less of a, of a problem. Um, uh, because it was, uh, it was not like Jerusalem, where it was just where the hotbed of, of a mess. Um, and Agrippa and Bernice, they were descended from Jewish royalty. Their, their, their parent, their grand, grand, grandmothers, and etc. had been... Uh, Jewish kings and queens, um, but though they descended from Jewish royalty, they were they were they were ambitious, opportunistic. They were they were all about appearances, and they were trying to to to, to elbow and they were playing dirty. They were playing by the world's rules, and they were not looking to God in faith. They weren't following the examples of the good kings in the scriptures, though they were Jews. They were primarily figureheads. Their family, all their pomp and circumstance, notwithstanding, they were in Caesarea seeking the beneficence of the new government. That's why they were there. They came to greet Festus. And Festus is happy to seek their aid because they were helpful for him. They're Jewish. They understand what's going on, and that's why he presents the case to them. So this, the stage is now set for Paul's testimony before rulers and kings. And we're going to get into his testimony next week. But today we get to look at a little bit of what is crazy here. The senselessness of sin. It's just straight up irrational. Because Festus refused to do the right thing, because he kicked the ball down the road, for political reasons, it results in his dilemma. How do you explain sending an innocent prisoner to your Caesar? 
But this is true about sin. This is how sin works. It's, it's a logic problem. It's the law of cause and effect. It, it, take a math equation. If you mess up some of the inputs in the equation, this works in, in it works in the, um, well, if you mess up the equation, you get a wrong answer. You get a wrong answer. It doesn't work. It's confusing. It messes things up. It's irrational. Um, there's a reason that sin is described consistently through Scripture as darkness. Sin loves to hide in the shadows. Because it's, a, it's, a, it's, not, it's not good. It's not true. It's not beautiful. And so it hides. It hides. Because it hates the light. This is the reason that... Um, Complex systems are, can be so frustrating. I mean, if you ever had a big, complex issue you're trying to, to, to manipulate and figure out what the right thing to do is or what the right answer is, it's so frustrating because because of the complexities, the errors hide. And so, like, take huge systems like our government or school systems or healthcare. Um, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. It, the, the complexity just makes things frustrating. Uh, making stuff more complicated just makes it harder to see inconsistencies or display what the error is, where the falsehood is. But the essence of truth is Jesus Christ. He's the answer to sin. He's light. He's truth. And, the, and, and, and Jesus is the one who, who, who makes, he makes everything clear. He answers the problem. He fixes the equation. He deals with the sin. Jesus is the fulcrum of all reality. He's the focal point. It's the cross. It's at the cross where everything just gets aligned. He deals with the problem. He is the light that shines in the darkness. And what did sin do? What did the sinners do? They killed him. But that didn't stop his shining. God brought him back from the dead. That's, that's what this whole thing is about, remember? About a certain Jesus who the Jews said is dead, but Paul said, says is alive. Well, that's what everybody has. That's, that's the trial that everybody has to, to put their heart before. Do you believe that Jesus is alive? Do you believe the gospel? That God sent His Son to die for your sins. And if, if you do, then you owe God everything. He, he deals with the sin. He takes the, the, the error out of the equation. But if you close your heart to truth, if you close your heart to light, if you close your heart to Jesus, then you're done. You're stuck living in an irrational world. It goes back to my exhortation this morning. Uh, the perverse man's way is full of thorns and snares. Because of his irrationality, he's stuck. It's senseless. And its end is death. The wages of sin is death. It's pointless. It's misery. It's pain. But if we open our eyes to God's revelation, to Jesus Christ, then the truth is there. He gives us light. He gives us revelation. And the consequences of sin are evident. So you take complex systems, and, well, how are we going to fix it? Well, we need more money, or we need this, or we need, we need more teachers. We need this. We, we need more education. We need that. Um, but the consequences are evident. We have high school graduates who cannot read. The system's broken. Take the government. Well, we, you could you could list a mile long what each side thinks that we need to fix it. But you look at the consequences. The thousands of murdered babies, and you say this system is broken. There's sin in the machine. We need Jesus. That's, the, that's what we need.
that's where we need to keep our focus. It's on Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we can, we, can, we can bring the gospel to the world. We have the answer to the problem. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Die to yourself. Give up your false worship, your false gods, your self-worship. Give it up. Give up your idolatry and worship Jesus. Read his word. Learn it. Understand it. Get the eyes to see the consequences of sin. Get the eyes to see the path to redemption. To see Jesus and how he works. And he works in the church. He works in the Lord's Supper. He works in baptism. He works in the preaching of the word. Be washed. Be cleansed. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Now, go out and live like it. In apologetics, we use this truth, the senselessness of sin, all the time. It's called an argument ad absurdum. And, it, and what we do is when we come across a false worldview, you just follow it to its logical conclu conclusion. And because it's based on a rejection of Jesus Christ, it always ends up in absurdity. But by faith and God's revelation, we can see real and true truth. God is real. And we can convict and exhort and give life and comfort and blessing by pointing to Jesus. The, the next thing that we see is, is that though this sin is everywhere and though this senselessness is everywhere, God is not stopped or hindered by our sin. The two greatest powers known in Israel, the temple and the Jewish system, the Jewish national system, King Agrippa and Bernice, and the Jewish chief priests, and the Roman procurator, Festus. These are the greatest powers in the land. They're opposed to Paul. Or they're trying to figure him out. They don't make sense of it. And they're left with absurdity. But Paul doesn't need to get worked up. God is sovereign and he's writing the story. You, Jesus, I mean, I've been saying this a lot in the last month and a half. But Jesus says to Pilate, you would have no authority unless God had given it to you. Paul comes before these great powers, the pomp and circumstance, the leading men of Caesarea and Israel in chains. And he has the truth. And the truth sets him free. As we read in 2 Timothy in our, in our New Testament reading this morning, he says, I am bound with chains, but the gospel is not chained. It's powerful to save. There's a principle that comes to light in our text, and this is this. It's using earthly means, appealing to Caesar, is good. Paul didn't make a mistake when he appealed to Caesar. It was good. He used them the earthly means that God had given him. The circumstances that he had. He was a Roman citizen. He had the right to appeal to Caesar. And if he didn't, it was likely he would be killed on the way to Jerusalem. So he appealed to Caesar. Yet, he doesn't do it out of works-based salvation. He does it out of faith. He's living by faith. Now this principle is important. We live in a world where God expects us to live by wisdom, to do good, to do the right thing, to foresee evil, just to hide ourselves from the consequences of sin. So there's many ways that we can do that in our culture. You know, buying insurance is one of those ways. You know, uh, Diversifying your assets is, is another way to do it. Um, using the legal system, the governments, knowing your rights and exercising them, voting, you know, owning a gun. There's lots of ways that you can protect yourself. They're smart. They're good things to do. You know, knowing that you, you know, Paul knows he can appeal to Caesar. You know, doing these things are wise things to do. It's using earthly means. And God can use them to save you. To help you, to protect you. The problem is in our hearts. It's easy for men to transfer our faith from God to our own power, our own strength. 
When God gives us assets, when God gives us protections, when God blesses us with wealth, it becomes really easy for us to forget to realize what all of this is based on and where all of this comes from, and God can take it all away in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. You know, the rich fool fills his barns full and says, now I can eat, drink, and be merry. God says, you're dead tonight. In a heartbeat. Never take your eye off Jesus. I mean, you serve Jesus by being wise and faithful with your your goods, with the things he's blessed you with. That's serving him. That's, but don't forget that that's the point, is you're serving Jesus. The gospel makes sense out of the senselessness. The, the pomp, you know, the swagger, the arrogance of the people that, that, that Paul shows up in front of, that all that power and authority, all those blessings are derived from God. And God will judge and God will vindicate. Because Jesus changed the game. It's not done when we die anymore. The, game, the, 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 the whole game has changed. Because Jesus is, or God is the God of the living, and Jesus came back from the dead, and we have the hope of the resurrection, now we wait on him. We wait on him for deliverance. And he gives us peace. Paul knows peace in jail. And that patience pays off. God uses faithful and humble servants, and he writes his story in our little lives. We are nothing. We're worms. We're less than worms. We're dirt. We're dust. We're ashes. We're nothing. We are nothing. Absolutely nothing. We have no right on our own to stand up before anybody or anything or God and say, look, look at me, look how good I am. This, you're nothing. Unless God gives you whatever you are. And whatever you are is a gift from God and you owe it to Him. And God uses a humble and faithful servant. He writes His story in our little lives. He lifts us up in His presence when we come to worship Him here. You are being brought into His presence. You're coming face to face with God. God draws us into Himself. That's worship. This is eternal life, worshiping God. Because when we worship Him, He can fill us with His Spirit and His light and His life. Eternal life. It doesn't matter if you're rotting in a jail like Paul, or suffering under unjust rulers, or you have uh, a Democrat governor or whatever it is, Democrat president. It doesn't matter. God gives everything that is, and he establishes everything that is. And our job is merely to point to the truth, to point to Jesus Christ, to point to what's right. Paul wrote Philippians from jail. It's a prison epistle, and, he's, and he says this, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Sin is a blight on the earth. It has destroyed us, and it brought suffering and death for thousands of years, and it continues to do so. Ever since our first parents ate the fruit. And here at this table we see the true nature of sin. Jesus had to die. Because we all had to die. Jesus died because we sinned. And Jesus says we must eat his body and drink his blood. And this is a hard teaching. He says... We must do that in order to have eternal life. It's the answer to death. It's the answer to the problem, the antidote to sin. We must eat 
the body and drink the blood of Jesus Christ. Christians were accused of cannibalism in the Roman Empire because of this teaching. At the same time, we reject all other gods. And we do so because with Peter, we say, who else has words of life? Yeah, Jesus, you give us hard teachings. Eat your body, drink your blood. What's that? But who else has words of life? Who has eternal life? There is no other God. And because of this, Christians were considered atheists in the Roman Empire. But thankfully, we don't live in the Roman Empire. Jesus has overthrown that wicked nation. And he will continue to overthrow everything that sets itself in opposition to him. Until we all learn not to be offended by him. Except the hard teaching. We must learn to see him as the source of all good and light. We must come to this table hungry for his life and his nourishment. Hungry for Him and His Spirit. But be of good cheer, because when we come to Him hungry, He satisfies. Our Lord said this, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Christ's body broken for us. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website. ChristKirkMI.com. That's C H R I S T K I R K M I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.